Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am sitting in maybe the most beautiful place of all time, Uh, certainly the most beautiful place I've ever recorded a podcast. (laughs) Um, I am perched very high on a hill in San Marcos in Guatemala on Lake Atitlan. And uh, someone who listens to Chris's podcast offered us their Airbnb for a few nights, which is fucking epic to say the very least um we were planning on coming out here anyway but did not expect to stay in such a a crazy spot um words can't even describe the view that I have right now like just 180 degrees of insane volcanoes and this beautiful blue lake and lush uh forests and it's sort of like Hawaii but like more epic. And I wish you could all be here right now with me looking at this view. Um, Having said that, if there are any listeners who are in Guatemala, in San Marcos, um, apparently Chris and I both have a lot of podcast fans here. We've already met a few of them on the street. uh, And I'm not sure how long we're going to stay here, but we will be here at least through the weekend. Today is Thursday, September 2nd. Um, for those of you that may be listening to this later, uh, but we're going to do a meetup at Vida by the lake on Saturday at 6 PM. So if you happen to be here or somewhere near here and you want to come meet us and hang out, we would love to meet you and hang out with you. Um, yeah, so man, it's been, uh, it's been nice to be out of the U S but I can't say that it's totally made me feel better (laughs) about the situation of the world. Um, Yeah, it's definitely, things are so intense politically, environmentally, um, as far as the virus is concerned, there's really nowhere to escape. I feel like every country is struggling in different ways and it's disheartening. I mean, especially, I think it was just last night that New York, all the subways were flooded I feel like it's every single like apocalyptic climate change movie I've ever watched, but in real life. Um, And I was just saying to a friend, I feel like, I don't know, in the past we could sort of say like, it's coming, it's ahead of us. And it's no longer ahead of us. We're in it uh, from all angles, I think. Um, But especially environmentally, it's a little bit intense. Um, And I know so many of us are feeling that. I know I've been speaking about this whole everything is beautiful and dying thing for the past couple of episodes, 
but it really feels that way. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of loss that we're all going through personally. There's a lot of loss that we're all going through collectively. And I just want to keep reiterating that because the last thing any one of us needs at the moment is to feel isolated or alienated in that feeling. And I think if we could all support each other in being honest about that grief and support each other in expressing that grief, that really that's the best thing that we could do. And that that in and of itself, I don't know, is a form of worship and service to the loss, right? Grief and love are two different expressions of the same thing. And sometimes it's a little bit more toward the love end of the spectrum, and sometimes it's a little bit more toward the grief end of the spectrum, but I don't think those two things can be separated at all. And I feel like I live my life at this point with both being consistently present at all times. Um, So I'm also really excited um, about the fact that I have relaunched my Lunar Circle, which is a month-long sort of intensive workshop that combines both lectures and group discussions. It's basically an introduction to astrology and archetypal psychology course. Um, And I'm doing it again in October. This is the third time I'm doing it and very likely the last time I'll be doing it at least for quite some time. Um, As I've mentioned, I have a lot of other ideas and a lot of projects I'd like to work on, but feeling very good about bringing it back not just because I love teaching people about mythology and about archetypes, but because I truly feel like we need each other right now. And um, this course is a way to spend time with like-minded people. The people who take this course are people that listen to my podcast. Um, And so it's people like you. And I know even though we live in these like very popular, crowded areas sometimes, we can still feel exceptionally alone. And it's very difficult to meet each other. Uh, And so my Patreon community, but also my Lunar Circle, is a way to connect with people and feel less alone and actually develop a community. Um, I think I've spoken about before, like sometimes we feel like we need to like buy land and like move people in and and really create community in this um, very specific, very comprehensive way. Um, And I think especially as millennials, a lot of us feel at this point, at least having grown up with social media and technology, a little bit skeptical of it, wondering if it's helpful or not helpful. But I do think that the community aspect that it can create is extremely helpful. And I think it's okay to create community in sort of unconventional ways. Um, You don't need to buy land. You don't need to build a house. You don't need to build an entire community in real life, at least not right now. Um, And don't let that sort of end goal keep you from meeting people now. Um, This course uh, is going to work a little bit differently this time. In the past, I combined lectures with group discussions, and now I'm separating the two. So instead of just meeting six times, we're actually going to meet 11 times. So you will meet with me uh, six times over Zoom to do lectures, and then I'm going to separate everyone into smaller groups, and that's where the group discussions will take place, and those are going to be um, overseen and managed and organized by former Lunar Circle graduates. So you not only get to meet people who are taking the Lunar Circle now, but also people who have taken it in the past, uh, which is really cool, and I'm really excited to see all of their faces again. Um 
because I love them and because they're awesome and because I consider these people my family at this point. And something else that I've been thinking about recently that I struggle with is, and and it doesn't just have to do with astrology or spirituality, but I'm going to talk about it at least in this context right now, which is that I feel often sort of isolated and alienated within the realm of spirituality. Um, I think there's a lot of bullshit out there. Um, I find that I don't really relate to a lot of quote unquote spiritual communities. Like I want to take a yoga class, but I don't really want to join your yoga cult. Um, and I've talked obviously a lot about spiritual bypassing and narcissism and gurus and ungrounded spirituality. Um, I did a podcast a little while ago called A Millennial's Guide to Spirituality and then followed it up with a podcast with my friend uh, Jenny Kellogg and we talked about how to responsibly navigate a spiritual awakening. But I'm just really, can I feel like maybe it's just what is appearing uh, most in the public realm, but I feel like most of what I see, most spiritual communities, most spiritual leaders... I just don't relate. Um, And I think not just do I not relate, but I think a lot of harm is done. I think there's a lot of overuse of psychedelics. I think there's a lot of ungrounded ways to practice spirituality. I think a lot of people think they're God (laughs) instead of just thinking that maybe we have the potential to be God, but we're still humans and we're not going to get to 5D consciousness anywhere near this lifetime. It's a goal. Um, or it's something to, to look at and to, to move toward. But, you know, if the journey is from A to Z, like you might get to like A.1 in this lifetime. Um, we're not gonna, we're not enlightened. Um, and there's such an overuse of these phrases, enlightened, awakened, channeling, delivering codes, A lot of it's bullshit. I mean, maybe there's like 0.01% of people that are actually quite developed and quite further along in this journey, but most of us are full of shit. And most of what I see on the internet, most of these people, they're full of shit. And so it's really difficult for me because here I am on the internet creating a, a course around spirituality and around astrology. And I dislike like basically all of popular astrology. Um, and I know for those of you that are listening, I've talked about this a bunch and I've tried to have different astrologers on or people within these communities that I do actually trust and who are grounded. But I think for the most part, the people who are enlightened are not speaking out as much, right? And the people that are pretending are. We're reading um, Spell of the Sensuous this month for our Patreon book club, which if you'd like to join us, you still can. Just go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. And if you sign up for the $10 a month level or up, you can participate in our book club. You can get a discount on the Lunar Circle. Um, We have a Discord server, tons of stuff there. But reading this book this month, we just started, and I'm only on page 13, um, and It was really fascinating. Um, David Abram in the beginning is talking about like, what is a shaman? Um, What, what do we consider a shaman and why are they a shaman and what are we actually talking about? And he talked about how um, in indigenous communities, uh, 
shaman often live on the outskirts of a village. And part of this is to keep some privacy for themselves and also keep a little bit of a mystery about themselves because if they don't, that people might go to them for all sorts of ailments, right? Like, I'm, I'm in a bad mood today, will you heal me? And so there's sort of a lot of mystery and unknown and almost a little bit of fear of the shaman, which um, David Abram was sort of talking about may be intentional. But it was so fascinating because he said that they... They, they're physically located on the outskirts of the village or on the outskirts of the town. And the reason for that is because their main job is to be a mediary between the human world and the rest of the natural world. So between plants and animals and humans. And that that's actually what they do. They're not engaging in supernatural realms, right? Uh, supernatural is more of a framing that you know, Western religions um, have coined because we think of anything that's non-human as supernatural, which of course is ridiculous. Um, humans are a part of the natural world and the natural world is just as animate as humans are. And so the shaman's job is to mediate between these two worlds and that you will never find a shaman in the center of town or in the center of the village because his job is not to oversee the humans. His job is to communicate to humans the messages that are coming for the re from the rest of the animate world, from plants, from, from animals, from energy, etc. And it just occurred to me that like all of these people on social media, all of these self-made shaman who go do ayahuasca one time in Peru and decide that they're enlightened. And then they get on social media and they have this big community and they are in many ways, you know, the figurehead or the guru of a human group is completely opposite of what it means to be a shaman. A shaman means to live in the shadows, right? It means to put yourself outside of the human community and just be an intermediary. And so it's a constant struggle, at least it is for me. It doesn't seem to be a constant struggle who people, for people that may not understand this, but for me to teach about spirituality, for me to teach about astrology and get on social media and promote myself feels so inauthentic. But of course, I don't live in a traditional indigenous village I mean, I don't consider myself a shaman, but even, even just someone who teaches or, or wants to share what I've learned with other people about narrative and archetypes and mythology and story, um, it's very difficult for me to like get on the mic and speak to a group of people because it feels opposite of what I'm trying to teach about. It feels opposite of where I feel like I belong. Um, and to me, spirituality is so personal and so inward and challenging. And it's not pretty costumes or a lot of followers or I'm trying really hard not to like call out specific people on the internet who I feel like embody this, but um, I'm sure a lot of you can understand who those people are. Um, I don't relate to them, and yet I feel that I'm associated with them, and that's very frustrating. I was also thinking about this recently in the context of non-monogamy. Um, 
that I think there's a version of non-monogamy that's very superficial and uh, created in a way to avoid intimacy and partnership. Um, And that's not really the version that I relate to. And in fact, that myth about it is what really kept me from exploring it for so long because I thought like, well, I like this idea, but I also really, I want emotional intimacy and I want a partnership and this feels super casual and superficial and like people are just fucking whoever they want. And it didn't, I, I didn't relate to it. And recently I've been thinking about how like the superficial version of something, so the superficial version of non-monogamy or the superficial version of spirituality almost feels farther away from me than something totally different. Like I almost relate to people who are not spiritual more than I relate to people who are in my mind superficially spiritual. I relate to people who are monogamous in committed partnerships more than I relate to this sort of avoidance of intimacy version of non-monogamy. And that kind of sucks because I feel like I spent so much of my life feeling super alone and super alienated and super different and super unconventional and like not understood. And then finally I did all this work to shed all of that skin and enter into these communities. And yet I entered into them and still felt alienated and alone. And that seems to just continually perpetuate. Um, And it's not the way I feel all the time. I feel like I have a lot of friends who do um, practice these things in a way that I do. I especially feel that way for those of us who have take uh, those of you who have taken the lunar circle. Obviously, you took that course because, in some respect, you align with the ways that I view these things and teach these things. But it's just something I wanted to call out generally, both to say I feel awkward about it, <laughs> um, but also maybe to give voice to any feelings that you have in that respect, right? Like I imagine there are a lot of you that are like a little bit interested in astrology or consider yourselves to be spiritual people, but feel so embarrassed about saying that you're into astrology or saying that you're spiritual because you don't want to be associated with these people who are not at all who you feel you are. And that's hard. And I hope that if you're feeling that way, um, that you do consider taking the lunar circle because there, I think there are ways to be spiritual and not be a douchebag. Um, there are ways to be non-monogamous and not treat relationships with a degree of casual superficiality. And also, and I think this very much will relate to the episode that you're about to hear, which is with my with two-thirds of the Cosmic Tonic podcast, Kestrel and Eliza. Jasmine, unfortunately, could not join us for this conversation, but she was very much there in spirit. Um, but we we're talking about Venus and unpacking the archetype of Venus. And I think what really hit me when I learned about this archetype uh, the most was that she represents core needs. Um, and I think we tend to oversimplify her archetype and just consider her to be representative of love and relationships. But of course, as humans, we need much more than that. Yes, partnership, romantic partnership, sexual partnership is important. Um, but also community is important and also eating food is important and also having pleasure in our lives is important um, and being in a location that inspires us and that we love. All of, thing, all of these things are human needs um, and we literally can't survive without these things. 
And I think it's extremely important at a time like this to answer to our needs and give ourselves what, what it is that we need. Um, and for me, I think I fought against having a spiritual practice or existing within a spiritual community because, again, all these things I'm talking about, it felt silly and ridiculous and embarrassing. But really, in, in seeking that for myself and allowing myself to find people who were aligned with me, that was, by and large, one of the most enriching experiences that I ever gave myself, not just in the people that I met and the community that I developed, but at this point, I'm not really sure how, how I would navigate this world, the ways in which it's dying, the loss that I feel is shouting at us on a daily basis without this grounded sense of something bigger is going on. And I don't really need to define that. You know, the other weird thing about calling myself an astrologer is that I don't really look at astrology charts that often which isn't to say I'm like doing readings for people and not looking at their astrology chart and just winging it. But what I mean is that for me, spirituality is more about just being grounded in this, the greater meaning of the world, whatever that is for you. you know, whether that's like I'm, I have pa these past lives and I'm here on this karmic journey. If it's just that in you, you want to treat things as like things come into my life for a reason, you know, not necessarily like everything happens for a reason, but I'm going to choose to take this event that occurs that's maybe more traumatic or painful and use it, alchemize it in some way to learn more about myself, to grow as a person, to help other people. This idea that this world or this life is pointless and that we're all just going to die or that this is a simulation, it's the most uninspiring thing ever, I think. And I think taking that on, I mean, I guess I always sort of considered myself agnostic, but I didn't really know that you could have a version of spirituality that wasn't an organized religion. Um, and then I really felt like it just started hitting me in the face through synchronicity and learning about these other ways of finding meaning in the world. But I truly feel like I wouldn't be able to have this podcast. I would, I mean, certainly, obviously wouldn't be able to do the lunar, lunar circle. Like, I don't really know how it would get through the day without a greater sense of meaning and purpose. And as hard as it is sometimes uh, to try to show people that I'm different from what they might think astrology is or promote my course in a way that tries to exemplify a version of spirituality that is not ungrounded and narcissistic and egoic, it's so much more preferable to where I feel that I was before, which was pretty numb and pretty desensitized and sort of dead in a way. Um, I think I briefly mentioned this on the podcast that I recorded with Chris and Tao, the last episode I, I put out, about how you know maybe life is not the opposite of death, um, but really birth being the opposite of death. And if we sort of take the idea of birth and it's extend that outward toward creativity and creation that without that inspiration, without that meaning, without looking at the world and feeling it as beautiful and magnificent and inexplicable to me, that's death in a way. And I get that I don't necessarily have any control about what happens to this planet, what happens to people, what happens in my own life, but it feels a hell of a lot better 
to see the beauty in the world for all that it is, even if it's dying, even if it's painful. At some point during my dark night of the soul that I went through five or so years ago, I got really sick. I got a ton of acne, which is like an understatement. Uh, like basically my entire face just became totally inflamed. Um, I was really, really sick and really scared to go outside. And I didn't see anybody except for my therapist and an acupuncturist and one friend who also had struggled with acne in the past. So she was the only person I felt comfortable being around. Um, but I cut off contact from my mom, I, uh, which caused a, a ripple effect with my brother. A lot of my friendships ended. Uh, my marriage ended, a different romantic relationship ended. It was just like everything was gone and I felt so, so, so alone. But I remember very vividly, I started taking solo road trips and camping out in nature by myself, which was scary at first because I'd never really done anything like that before and I was gone for weeks at a time on my own. Um, But what I eventually, or not even eventually, what I pretty quickly felt was like, you know what? If I have nothing in my life and all I have is nature, I'm going to be okay. And I'm and this is community enough. This world is so rich. When you just get out there and you open yourself up to what's there, this animate world that we often forget exists. It's like the biggest fucking family and community you could ever ask for. It's not human, but that's okay. It provided me with enough comfort to feel that like if I never got better and I just lived in a cave somewhere, that I wouldn't be lonely. I would be fine. And to me, that was very much where my sort of spiritual beliefs came from, was opening myself up to this greater world. And it's why I feel so unhappy about and uncomfortable by the version of spirituality that doesn't consider that. And that just really seeks to gain followers or recognition or speak on a stage or have people pay you for shit, have people think you're enlightened and above them. Like this isn't actually necessarily at least not in its entirety, a personal journey. This is about becoming more connected to the world. And I think that's really what I like to teach. You know, astrology is most often, you know, we think, okay, you're a Leo, which means you're courageous and fun and the life of the party. But the thing is that all of those qualities were initially based in a mythology. That's where those qualities come from. But we forget that. And so we just start to talk about all these traits that are associated with whatever sign and whatever planet we're talking about, but we forget that they're based in a story and in a narrative. And so the way that I teach astrology is to teach you about the myths. So what is the myth behind Leo? Often there are many myths behind any sort of archetype, um, and I, I talk about a few, but I pick ones that are I feel particularly inspiring to me. And of course, we're not just our sun sign, right? And in many ways, our sun sign is not the most important. You're not even supposed to read your horoscope for your sun sign. You're supposed to read it for your rising sign, but we don't even know what that is most of the time. Um, So we had every planet. Every planet was in the sky somewhere when we were born. 
So not only did you have the sun in something, but you had Mars in something. You had Venus in something, Jupiter, Pluto, etc. But we don't know what any of those things are, so we feel sort of like, well, maybe I kind of relate to that archetype, but I feel like I'm a much more comprehensive person than that. (laughs) And you are. Um, And I think the sort of more impactful way to relate to these things is to put ourselves into the story itself. So we're not just a collection of traits. We're actually telling stories and narratives with our lives, right? So if we talk about the archetype of Mars, for example, Mars is representative of many different things. On the healthy side, it can be bravery. It can be a connection to your desire and the ability to follow your desire and get and do what you want. But it can also be angry and it can also be defensive, And so if we see that we have a prominent Mars in our chart, as I do, we can start to recognize, oh, okay, when I do that thing, I'm telling that version of the story. I'm expressing that shadow side of the archetype. But when I do this thing, I'm expressing the healthy part of that story. And what happens when we we become aware of and take ownership of those stories? We can change them. And this is not just for your personal use, but I think also how we interact with the world and with the planet. I think about this specifically when a lot of people my age, I'm sure many of you can relate, that you don't want to have kids because you don't want to birth children into this world that's dying. So that's one version of the story. The other version of the story is I'm not having kids because I deeply care about this planet. And if this planet has any hope for survival, fewer people need to live on it. To me, that feels like a far more empowering, inspiring version of the story than the other one, which feels like I'm a victim of this dying world, and even if I wanted to have kids, I can't because I don't want their lives to be miserable. We're making the same choice, we're talking about the same thing, but we're operating and working in a different narrative. It's slight, but it's definitely different. Um, And so that's what astrology does. It puts us in touch with all of these different stories and then allows us to choose which stories we tell and how we tell them. And how much of the way that we treat the planet or treat ourselves or think about ourselves or think about the planet, how much of that story is actually what's perpetuating the problem? How much of are feeling like we're victims, are feeling like humans are the problem. Is that really helping? Is there a different narrative that we could tell that would restore reciprocity? Is there a different narrative that we could tell that would make us just feel fucking better about ourselves? (laughs) Um, And so that's what this course is about. It's taking away all of these buzzwords. It's rejecting this whole sun, sun sign, horoscope astrology, And it's allowing you to touch base with all of these sort of stories that exist in the collective unconscious so that you can learn about yourselves, you can learn about other people in your lives, and you can learn about the planet, and then choose to move forward intentionally, telling whatever story you want to tell, not just telling the story blindly. That might be harming you, that might be harming someone else, or might be harming the planet. So I hope you will join us. Enrollment is now open. You can go to Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot com slash lunar circle. 
All of the information is there. I've listed all the times for the lectures. Um, if you're in a different time zone, don't worry about it. You don't need to attend the lectures live. I'm gonna be recording them and posting them right away. Uh, the group discussions are more important to attend live, but there's lots of different options for those. So you can uh, participate in those five different calls in the morning, in the afternoon, or at night. Um, and those are all listed at the bottom of the enrollment form. So once you go to anyacots.com slash lunar circle, click enroll, scroll down to the bottom, you can view those group times. Those are more of the, um, the dedicated meeting times that are important to participate in live just because a great way to learn astrology is to see how other people are experiencing these archetypes. Archetypes are multivalent. They're not um, simple, as newspaper astrology would like you to believe. <laughs> They're very complex and ever-evolving. Um, and so like when I learned astrology, I gave a bunch of readings because the more readings you give, the more, the more examples you have for how an archetype or a sign or a planet can express itself. So I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to stop. If you have any questions about the course, if you're hesitant to sign up, if you need a payment plan, let me know. Reach out to me. I'm also happy to set up calls with people if you'd like to touch base with me directly more intimately about the course. Um, uh, there's discounted pricing um, that's available through September 10th. So you have basically nine days uh, to register with that discounted pricing. And then the pricing goes up on September 11th and registration closes on September 20th. I may have to cap enrollment um, because I don't want the group discussions to get too big. So if you would like to sign up, please do so sooner rather than later. Um, and yeah, that's all I'm going to say because I hate promoting myself and it sucks and it's annoying, but I hope you will join us. Um, I would love, love, love to share the beauty and the meaning of what I've learned through astrology with you, show you that there are grounded meaningful, non-ridiculous ways to be a spiritual person in this world. Um, I keep thinking of maybe doing an Instagram live that's like literally would be called how to be spiritual without being a douchebag. Um, so let me know if you think that's a good idea. I want to talk more about this um, with all of you. Instagram lives are also annoying. Just as podcasts are annoying because I'm just talking at you and I really want to have discussions with you. Um, but maybe we can work something out in the Instagram live and you guys can agree to actually like send in comments and questions and it can become more of a discussion than just me talking at you through a device. Um, all that said, please enjoy this conversation. Uh, if you scroll through back episodes of the podcast, it'll be pretty easy to see which ones are about spirituality and astrology. But if you're wanting some more information about how I approach these things before signing up, I highly recommend listening to those episodes. There's a lot of content. We're almost at episode 100 of the podcast, which is really freaking crazy. Um, so there's lots there. It's not just uh, new episodes that I release, but you have access to all of the ones that I've released in the past as well. Uh, I'm going to play you in with a song today called Road to Venus by Leif Volubeck. I've uh, been looking for an excuse to play this song for a while. This song means a lot to me. Um, it's a song that my friend Autumn and I used to listen to constantly um, back in the day when we were both kind of struggling to figure out what it was we wanted to do with our lives and trying to find, find and locate and give ourselves these core needs um, that Venus represents. 
and uh, we even sort of considered creating a business called Road to Venus. Maybe it'll still happen. That would be really cool. Um, anyway, please enjoy this uh, song. Please enjoy this podcast episode. Please reach out to me with any questions that you have about the Lunar Circle. If you're sold and you want to sign up, do so sooner rather than later. Uh, AnyaKotz.com slash Lunar Circle. I would love to have you, get to know you better, and introduce you to other people who are just like you. Catch you on the other end. Constellation in the sky. And all's blue and twilight light. Saw your reflection in the pool. That's when I knew. I was yours, and if all's fair in love and war, nothing to get in between us. Road.
cactus trees and cactus flowers. I've been waiting here for hours. Just let me alone. You played me like a song. Intravena Okay, cool. So I am here with two thirds of Cosmic Tonic <laughs> and I'm really excited to have Eliza and Kestrel on today. We are going to talk about Venus, um, which I'm excited about. I've never really done a podcast episode just about like one planet or one sign. So I'm pretty stoked about this. And uh, yeah, I was telling Eliza, I'm at my friend Tao's house right now, who is probably one of the most like Venus inclined people I know. I don't know what his chart is, but he's very um, aesthetically sensitive and aesthetically minded. And every time I'm here, I, I'm constantly thinking about, <laughs> about, and maybe, maybe the, the Taurus version of Venus more so than Libra, but it's super present to me here. And um, I definitely have my own aesthetic uh, sensitivities. So I enjoy sort of existing within that space. Uh, so it seemed appropriate. And um, yeah, we're just going to sort of talk about uh, the archetype of Venus, some of the stories, touch on our own Venus placements, and see where the conversation takes us. <laughs> Thank you guys for being here. I just have to say for the audience's benefit, you're literally recording this from an art gallery. I, I am 100%. <laughs> in like a, a like a lace lingerie which is really appropriate as well and I also have this um this babe oil next to me it's just oh my very, gosh I'm surrounded <laughs> so this is like apply babe oil to my body like while we talk <laughs> yeah um cool so if does one of you want to sort of talk a little bit briefly about um, maybe sort of the more conventional uh, mainstream versions of Venus, and then we can sort of get a little bit more nuanced from there. Yeah, well, you know, I think we can make a subtle distinction between Venus, the planet, and astrology, and how it functions, how it tends to function in our chart and by transit. And Venus, the Greco-Roman deity, who's also known as Aphrodite. And obviously the two feed each other, 
But there's not a perfect parity between the um, Greco-Roman deities and the archetypes that have been crafted over thousands of years through literature and just oral story and poems mm -hmm. and how they tend to function in astrology. There can be significant differences. Um, a basic example when it comes to Venus is, have to say in in the canon, in the Greco-Roman canon, she's a vengeful bitch a lot of the time, <laughs> but we often see her as in astrology as being um, the planet of love, of connection, of harmony. And certainly that's a part of it too. She's Aphrodite. So she is this principle of, of love, of Eros, of, she's literally the mother of Eros, um, of joining together. But I do think that her, we can talk more about that, but I do think that her her archetype is, it, like all archetypes, it's multivalent and there are layers and it's not all honeyed. Um, but maybe I'll let Kestrel kind of step in and offer some thoughts too. Yeah, I mean, those are classic things that come up. And I, I think I was saying before we pressed record, you know, sometimes she can be in astrology, this really safe, attractive, attractive kind of chocolate box, pretty, I think I was alluding to. And I love that you just went ahead and called her a vengeful bitch, because I think the other component she really brings out are these polarities, love and fear, um, pain and pleasure, agony and ecstasy. And I just feel like also her connection with Eros just cannot be separated because it really is this journey of desire and the apprenticeship of love. And, um, you know, it's, it's like, I can think of her as just this adornment with beautiful jewelry and flowing blonde hair and, you know, pink highlights coming from her cheek. And that's all rosy and everything, but it's the, it's the undertones that really interest me that even go back to, um, you know, her ghastly myth with um, Gaia and Uranus, which maybe that's an undertone we'll pull through as we move forward. Um, and what the ramifications of really her birth from the sea foam, we can maybe tell that story at some point, because I really think that she presents a journey of, um, you know, how we can be in more unification with the earth versus the raping and pillaging. So I really think she is a human hearted, compassionate archetype. But, you know, that gets complicated because, you know, the intensities of our passion when what drives us to connect with others, it can be good for and bad. It's very nuanced. So, yeah, those were just some of the percolatings that came through as you were speaking, Eliza. Yeah, let's definitely, um, I'd love one of you to talk about the myth a little bit. And yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I always, <clears throat> when sort of teaching about archetypes or trying to explain archetypes to people, you know, they're very um, unrealistic to embody right solely. Like an archetype is this very sort of limited expression of something in and of itself. 
Um, and obviously as humans or as people, we not only embody like different versions of that one archetype and different versions of that archetype over time, but also it's mixed in with all these other archetypes. And I find Venus to be particularly complex in that way. When I think about her, how she shows up in the chart, it's always, um, there are so many different versions and, and not just like, because obviously she appears in the chart differently, depending on who we're talking about. Um, but also in general, it's hard to sort of look at love in a vacuum or, you know, desire or eros in a vacuum. Um, so yeah, do, do one of you want to talk a little bit about the, that story? Cass, I think you should go for it. Yeah, I have it written down a little bit for guidance. So yeah, so, you know, the ancient Greek poets and the myth makers tell this ghastly story of her origins. Um, so the earth goddess Gaia um, just was sick of this like eternal and joyless copulating with her husband, son, <laughs> known as Uranus. Um so sex with him just left her like permanently pregnant and, you know, children trapped inside of her. And she eventually persuades one of her sons, um, Kronos, um, also known as Saturn, to take action. And so gathering up his serrated flint sickle, um, you know, he <laughs> fanatically hacks off um, his father's <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing erect and rutting penis <laughs> and throws the dismembered phallus and you know and testicles into the sea <laughs> you know and as these I hope your audience appreciates this and as the bloody organs you know hit the water you know a, a boiling foam started to seethe and then something magical happened from the frothing sea spoon rose an awful and lovely maiden the goddess Aphrodite the broiling gory mass proceeded to travel the Mediterranean from the island of Kythera to the coastline of Paphos in Cyprus so she was also known to be born of the sea and um, I just find it really interesting because Freud also later in life, well, in life in general, had this immense fascination with this castration and desire and eros. So anyhow, she's, she's born of the sea. And it's interesting too, that, you know, Venus holds a very special place in the chart. She has two places of Libra and Taurus where she feels at home, but then it is in Pisces, a water sign that she finds her exaltation. And then in an earth sign of Virgo, where she finds her fall. So I feel like this, this origin story is really interesting. And, um, yeah, so I'll leave you there. And if you want to add any more to this gruesome birth tale, <laughs> be my guest. <laughs> well, something I want to add, which is, I think, kind of cool is that, so yeah, some of the, like the spume from the testicles lands in the sea foam and turns into Venus or Venus is born from that. But some of it lands on the earth and it's from that that Nyx or night is born. So Venus is a sister to the goddess of night as well, which I think is an interesting um, anecdote. You were speaking before about that polarity. And if we consider that that polarity between like, what happens at night and um, well, it's not even necessarily a polarity, but there's a relation, there's like a sibling relationship 
between Venus and this goddess, this darker goddess of night. Um, but also I couldn't help but think it's so interesting because I hadn't actually heard that detail that Gaia was sort of fed up with being pregnant all the time. And it's so interesting that the corrective to that was to castrate the dude. And it does make me think about Venus or Aphrodite's embodiment of sex for the sake of pleasure and not for procreation and different forms of contraception, whether that's castrating <laughs> or birth control or condoms or whatever. Um, it does seem so appropriate, that story, building her up to be this embodiment of sex for the sake of it and um, and exploring your your corporeality, not as a mother and not necessarily as a wife, but as a as a lover and as a, a pleasure feeling being. Yeah, it's interesting her correlation with um, Mars, the archetype associated with Mars as well, because I think there's a lot of, they have such an interesting relationship with one another. And in some ways I feel like they're uh, like inseparable. <laughs> um, and I always sort of speak about <clears throat> or think about Mars also as desire or at, or at least the ability to fulfill desire, um, but that you have to have the desire first in order to know where to go or what to do or what path to follow. Um, and Kess, uh, I didn't finish it, but I was listening to the astrology podcast yesterday with Becca Tarnas talking about Venus. And she spoke about that too, that there's like, for example, in the action of a kiss, that there's this, uh, both the desire to have the kiss, but then you need to actually take action in order to, to get it. Um, but even separately, I mean, I think it's interesting to see sort of going back to the story a little bit to how, um, Aphrodite continues to appear in mythology. I think her role in the story of, um, Psyche and Eros is really interesting. And another example of that sort of like, vengeful jealousy, you know, I'm the ruler of the, of the women and, um, how dare anybody sort of like try to take that thrown away from me. And, um, yeah, I'm curious if you guys, uh, and maybe we can talk a little bit about our own charts too, in your own lives and experience have, um, seen ways in which Venus sort of shows up in these more nuanced, uh, unconventional ways, a friend of ours who we did our um, apprenticeship with, Whitney, I think did a post at one point talking about Venus as a malefic, which I thought was really interesting, um, and Saturn as a benefic and like how that might show up. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear personally uh, what your interactions with this archetype have been. That's so funny. That sounds very contrarian, but <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I also feel that Venus's qualities, it's one of the planets that really does seem to shift depending on the sign she's occupying. I think Venus in Scorpio has a very different vibe from Venus in Libra or Venus in Sagittarius. So they all have such different vibes. Um, but I do think that love, love itself can make us absolutely obsessive wrecks of human beings and they can also lead us to make really poor decisions or uh, intoxicated sure. decisions and and also harmful decisions to ourselves and to other people there's there's nothing I don't want to you know 
parrot the cliche about love and war because I think that's also like annoying, but that cliche exists for a reason. And mm-hmm. there can be um, a stinger, I think, in love. And Venus doesn't disown that side of it. I do think that Venus is the absolute divine like heart swelling merging between two or more people, but it's also the heartbreak and like the guttedness you can feel or the obsessive, I don't know, social media stalking or like um, when you fixate on someone unhealthily and project all of the stuff onto them, that's Venus too. It's, it's not a docile energy. I think it's, it can be very, it can be very volatile. And maybe that's where that slightly malefic side can come in. I also think there's something to be said for Venus retrogrades to be bringing that quality out also. Um, however, I want to be clear. I don't mean to say that if you have Venus in Scorpio, you're like, you, you embody these negative qualities. Um, but I do think it's a, it's an archetype that can very much shift depending on the filter that we're seeing it in a chart. And I, I also think there's no shame attached to that. It's just like the reality of love is it's not always pretty. In fact, I would say maybe 50% of the time it's pretty, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's what I think I was sort of trying to pull in at the beginning, just with those polarities. Um, it can be so ecstatic and ecstasy, why well, ecstasy filled, but so agonizing as well. And I love the component of this projection because initially it's almost like, you know, it's an elixir, something is casted over us. We're not seeing clearly. And it's so easy. Venus can be such an object of our projection and what we want to see in other, and we're not really hearing and receiving or accepting somebody as they are. Um, and I also think of the other myth, you know, she, um, ended up cheating on her partner Hephaestus the craftsman you know she ended up getting with heirs and then there's this deep fascination with infidelity and I mean we can go so many directions with that too because of course you know more maybe the modern day Venus is doing the more ethical consensual non-monogamy and you know really broadening you know, our orientations and this, this fluidity that, that, that's possible. Um, it's just so interesting too, though, with the merging and this unification, cause it, it can also bring the opposite. Um, she's not like Mars as if she's so separating, but I do feel like she has like when the spell wears off, it can have a really separating <laughs> quality to it as as well and then also personally having a Venus in Virgo I can be very very critical too and that can be so an erotic killer an attraction killer you know when the beloved um receives that criticism as well so yeah yeah it is interesting like I even just reflecting back on this myself and sort of what I said at the beginning about the like multivalence of these archetypes. I think, I don't know what it is, but there is something about Venus. I think that obviously inevitably contains all these different facets, but also I think in our culture, maybe like 
romance is so romanticized and love is like, we live in such a sort of codependent, I think personally, and like unhealthy culture as it relates to connection. Um, and we really sort of like to rest in these totally delusional places of Venus sometimes. And, um, my partner always distinguishes between the phrase, I, I fell in love and I love, um, and that falling, uh, really speaks to being out of control, right? Like, um, and I think we all understand what that feeling is. We can all, we've all had the experience of being totally taken aback by someone else and feeling, you know, super strongly about them. Um, and it reminds me, I remember when I, I was in therapy uh, four or so years ago and I met someone and I was talking about that sort of like intoxicating feeling and how I recognized that it was like, Un, you know, unhealthy or like I should monitor it and, you know, it's not good and I should keep myself from uh, falling into that sort of delusional place. And I remember her saying like, well, maybe, but maybe a different version of that. Like, first of all, you can't necessarily control that feeling. <laughs> like it happens to everyone. We all project fantasies on the other person and, you know, whether we want to or not um, want them to fulfill these, you know, projected you uh uh just sort of like ecstatic versions of whatever it is we're we're projecting um but just that alongside that needs to be some degree of rationality and some degree of boundaries and some degree of like keeping your feet on the ground but that it's okay to indulge in that it just has to happen alongside something else um yeah and it's like I feel like we're very quick to talk about like, okay, yeah, like Mars, like the, the positive and negative sides of that archetype, right? Like we, I mean, that's spoken about constantly. And with Venus, I don't, I don't often hear people talking about the negative shadow aspects of Venus, probably as much as we should be. So for as bright and shiny as she is, I mean, first of all, um, inviting people to notice her in the night sky, right? She's shined so bright like a diamond, but on the other hand, that, that shininess can also cast shade. So I think it's, I love that how we're acknowledging the other side of it. And I love what your partner says about falling in love. Cause I also think one of the journeys of Venus is not like, do they love me or how do they love me? But it's this giving and receiving too of, you know, I am loving as well, and I am the beloved um, simultaneously. And that really requires <laughs> so much more work to get to that place um, and truly, truly accepting another person for who they are. Um, Elena, like this conversation is making me think about the term fascination. And like that word is a it's an old magical term. When you're fascinating someone, you're you're bewitching them. And yeah. this idea of like Venus in the star, or Venus, sorry, Venus in the sky bewitching us with her luminosity and enchanting us, and how love does that to us. Like when when we do see the world through those so-called rose-colored glasses, or we we perceive the best in someone that we're just falling in love with. Um, we refuse mm -hmm. to recognize any possible red flags or or just simply their realness. I mean, I think it, yes, it can lead to our downfall, but it's also very, it, it is ecstatic. It is blissful. There's a pleasure in that. And I, 
I like this distinction between falling in love and loving. And I think that loving itself and not falling is a, it's a maturation of, of that initial stage of, of infatuation. But I do also want to just honor that moment of not being in control. And I think as much as we live in a society that um, really romanticizes romance, as you said, and, and I agree, I think that so much of our film and popular culture emphasizes the delirium and the, the love is madness cliche. Um, at the same time, we also live in a, in a society that is very a work fueled, very structure fueled, and that doesn't often um, condone letting go of control. And there's something about that release mm. that Venus can not only permit, but instigate that I actually find very powerful and very, yeah, worth, worth mentioning also in a positive light. I think that also speaks to her exaltation in Pisces. I feel like I associate Pisces so much with letting go of control, obviously opposite to Virgo. Um, so yeah, that's that's fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah, and it's this tension too. Oh. I think you were alluding to it having listened to the astrology podcast with Becca Tarnas and that sort of that recept receptivity or desire to kindle that kiss, but you have to take action. And I think that that's what creates the eroticism and the arousal too, is kind of more this initial state of falling in love because there's so much uncertainty about the other and it's magnetic and, you know, it is, it's paradoxical too. It's a dance. And yeah, I know as, you know, you get to know somebody that, you know, hopefully it becomes more loving and, clear and seeing them, but how do we hold the opportunity of that erotic tension, right? I, I don't know if that's coming through, but, um, and it's also that tension, you know, because Venus and Mars sit opposite in the astrological chart, Libra is opposite Aries, which is ruled by Mars. And then also that Taurus Scorpio um, polarity. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to think about, I don't know, maybe like the structure, the context um, that Venus shows up in our world. In other words, like what sorts of relationships we have or or um, are expected to have or think that we should have. Um, like I it's fascinating to me in my life <clears throat> in the past. I feel probably all of us <laughs> have done this. Um, but especially when we're younger, like not being able to recognize that that feeling of infatuation or initial um, fantasy and projection isn't necessarily going to last and isn't necessarily built on reality. Um, and that it can maybe, you know, it can exist with people that we aren't necessarily meant to like be life partners with. Um, but I think we have this very rigid idea of what, especially a romantic relationship is. It's either like friends or a couple and we don't have, um, I mean, we do a little bit, but they mostly appear in like unconventional par parts of society, but like a sexual friendship, or maybe you're just, it's a short term relationship or a transitional relationship. And it's been really interesting, I think, in my life now, especially navigating non-monogamy to recognize that feeling 
appear with someone who I just meet, who I feel is amazing and I'm attracted to them and I think they're really cool. Um, but because I'm no longer uh, trying to fit people into that like friends or long-term partner box, it's like wild and fascinating to watch the infatuation fade and be like, oh fuck, like that was never going to work, you know? And, and I see that I can sort of just like recognize the feeling occur and sort of watch it, um, watch it appear, watch it exist. And then also watch myself go through that process of like, oh yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but thank God I didn't get involved. Right. And had I, had I gotten involved and had I put that relationship in a place that it wasn't supposed to be when that feeling of like, holy shit, this isn't really what I thought it was becomes much more difficult to entangle if you've already like relegated it to a certain part of your life. Um, so I think that's interesting too. And like, how might this feeling show up in all sorts of ways, you know, like with friends and, and if we, if we like removed the structure and the expectation, um, how could we sort of exist in that Venusian space more in different ways? <laughs> I love this. I love this as like a, a way that you're kind of refining your own radar around maybe who who is or isn't deserving of your your long-term commitment or devotion but it also makes me think about how the pleasures of relation also exist outside of those boxes and it it makes me think about flirting and flirting as a redistribution of confidence or charm or um, deposit dispositive vibes. <laughs> like sure. if you're feeling good about yourself and you're feeling sexy and you go and flirt with someone that really does make them feel seen and sexy or, or just good. And why not do that? And why not do that in a way that's maybe not even just flirting with whoever at whatever coffee shop, but like actually a little more intentioned and even exploring that, that encounter further and allowing that to dwell in a space of it just feels good. Mm-hmm. I think that like one of one of um, Venus's powers is simply indulgence and play and pleasure for the sake of it. There's no reason why. There's no long-term secure relationship that has to come from it. It's just for the the birthright and beauty of feeling pleasure or feeling good. Yeah, I'd um, I'd love to sort of talk a little bit about Libra and, and Taurus. Um, in that respect and sort of talk about, uh, I don't know, the similarities and the differences between the two signs that she rules as a way to sort of, um, yeah, exemplify what you are just talking about. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking about that flirtation. Um, and I guess if I bring it, maybe I'll just bounce it into Taurus first, but you know, when I think of Taurus as an earth sign, it's a fixed sign it's um, such a sensual sign has to do with all of our five senses and delicious food and enjoying our bodies. And um, there's something aromatic about it as well, which it's very alchemical with, you know, sex or pleasure of others too. There's something around the attraction and pheromone realm that comes into mind, but I also think of Venus and Taurus maybe as a little bit more trepidatious. I don't know, maybe if the two of you think of it this way, but maybe she 
is a little bit more slow to indulge um, in those senses. There's maybe a little bit more mindfulness or groundedness about it. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious what the other, what you both think. Well, I think as an air sign, Libra is inherently more interactional than Taurus. So I can see Taurus, yes, maybe being moving at a gentler pace, but also the, the experience of pleasure can be very self-contained and self-induced. And it can be a matter of, you know, choosing to wear clothing that have textiles that please your skin or, or yes, like wearing perfumes just for your own enjoyment. I The pandemic was a funny um, testing ground for that because I myself, and I have heard this from a few other people, we were finding pleasure in wearing scents just for our own enjoyment. We were on a, we were on Zoom all day. No one else was smelling us, but wearing, I actually was more inspired to wear scents when no one else was smelling me. <laughs> and it's just that, like that titillation of yes, your senses <laughs> that you can do for yourself, <laughs> but also yes, like that gourmand quality, enjoying good foods, drinks. Um, and also like the giving quality of the earth itself. Like it makes me think of Taurus season when flowers are coming from the earth and, um, just everything kind of burgeoning and moist and, um, full of life. <laughs> and, um, whereas Libra, to me, it's a little less tactile. It's more, um, not intellectual in the way that like maybe Aquarius can be intellectual, but there's certainly, perhaps more of an, an intellectual component when it comes to connecting with people through the mind or through through dialogue, through discourse. Um, I would say, of course, like the, the classic qualities of Libra and also involve balance. And I think that's where aesthetics can come into play. So, you know, in design, in architecture, in visual arts, finding that symmetry or that balance between color or um, just shapes, if you think, if you're, you know, framing a photograph, what do you want in the frame? Just that consideration to proportion and to image and um, yeah, and, and aesthetics. Like that's, I think about that almost the more visual sensory experience when it comes to Libra. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that I feel like Venus in Taurus is aesthetically sensitive and Venus in Libra is energetically sensitive. So like how mm -hmm. do the lights affect you? What are the sounds, right? Like sort of expanding it beyond that sort of tactile aesthetic experience and um, thinking about, yeah. And I think as a moon, having my own moon in Libra, um, uh, particularly, there's a lot of sensitivity to energy and to the ways that like the rain makes me feel or the sun makes me feel or the fluorescent lights or like the audio tone or like someone's the way that they speak or the level that the music is at. And of course, all of those to some extent are aesthetic as well, right? Like we see lights, we can, um, but some of it isn't. Uh, but I do think there is that sort of like, um, tranquility and beauty that then causes us to um feel a certain way ourselves uh that relational mm -hmm. quality of again like not just how we interact with people but how we interact with the world in general and that we are mm -hmm. in relationship with so many things um and yet the sensuality of it I mean I you know 
the fact that, you know, Taurus is whether whatever hemisphere you're in, like Taurus and Libra, it's like spring and fall. And those are like beautiful, sensual, engaging all of the senses um, Mm -hmm. times. And even like when uh, Venus appears in the sky at dusk or at at dawn, which I think was also something Becca Tarnas was talking about in that episode. Um, Yeah, they're just, they cause you like you can't ignore your surroundings in a way, right? Like you're, you're in a relationship with, with your surroundings mm-hmm. at those times of day and especially or, um, or those seasons particularly. Yeah. Nature is putting on such a Venusian show um, during that time of year. Yeah. And it's also with sunrise and sunset too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um Let's talk a little bit about our natal Venus placements. <laughs> um, I'll start. Uh, so I have Venus in Cancer. And it's funny, I'm sitting in front. I don't know if you guys can see this photo- uh, photograph, but it's a naked woman like lying centrally on the water, uh, which feels very much like my Venus <laughs> placement. <laughs> um, she is conjunct Chiron, however, uh, very closely in the fourth house, um, basically on my IC. Um, and for those who are not super fluent in astrology, um, Chiron is the wounded healer, sort of like our biggest wound in life, but also our capacity to heal that within ourselves and within others. Um, cancer is the sign of sort of the mother and comfort, uh, ruled by the moon. Um, the fourth house is, um, cancer's spot um and on my ic is sort of that again most like private intimate part of me um and so yeah i definitely with chiron there uh relate very deeply to the more nuanced version of venus um she's also opposite uh neptune for me uh so I feel like I've experienced this so many different ways with delusion for sure being, um, before I was super self-aware being extremely caught up in romance and in that falling in love feeling and just being like totally taken away and like launched into outer space by, by these feelings. Um, and then also the piece about, um, mothering and being nurtured, I think resonates a lot. I, we haven't talked about this yet, but I think there is, I feel for sure, this component of Venus that has a lot to do with core needs, um, having, you know, shelter, having food, having community, having relationship, friendship, um, different from Mars, which might be more like what we want. And Venus is like what we need to like function as a human. Um, And uh, yeah, I definitely, I had a very difficult relationship with my mother growing up. I don't necessarily feel like I got a lot of nurturance or emotional support Um, and also really didn't feel like I deserved that at all or had to work for it that in order to get love that I needed to like perform or um, act or serve or whatever, try harder all the time. Um, So yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting also to see how, um, like I've pretty much decided I don't want to have kids, but I take up a very motherly space in my life 
for other people. <laughs> um, so, you know, whether it's like nurturing my podcast community or building um, on my land in Colorado, sort of later and nurturing a community in that respect and really embodying the mother archetype uh, and expressing, you know, expressing and giving myself and others like the nurturance um, and care and attention that I feel like I didn't get a ton of when I was a child. Um, it's really fascinating to watch that um, show up as I get older, the more like offering the healing of Chiron to others bit instead of just like drowning in my own awful, um, yeah, lessons that I learned about love. <laughs> well, I wanna, I wanna reflect back to that. Like if you have your moon in Libra and Venus in Cancer, they're in a mutual reception with each other. So they, yes. are, they are dialoguing in a special way <laughs> in each other's language. <laughs> and yeah. what I'm hearing is that some of your, your lunar needs for like nurturance and for um, that sense of belonging that we ideally first get from our mother, some of that you're maybe finding in relationship, either through your role right. in relationship, but may, presumably also for what other people give you. Um, so it's interesting that your your Venus and your Moon are almost swapping places a little bit in their functioning, totally. Or they're helping each yeah. other out. They're they're playing supporting roles. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely communicating. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas my my Venus is very different. It's first of all, it's. Uh, opposite yours I don't know about degree but my Venus is in Capricorn it's in like probably the least romantic house which is literally known in Vedic astrology I found out in a reading um with Freedom Cole known as the house of celibacy <laughs> so I have my my Venus in the sixth house of celibacy in Capricorn it's like literally the least romantic placement <laughs> and I will say like I, even before I got into astrology, I defined myself as being wedded to my work. Like I didn't partake in romance <laughs> for many, many, many years. I mean, I was a very late bloomer as um, a, a teenager. Like I didn't even start dating really until basically I was 20. Um, However, my Venus is just like yours is opposite Neptune because we're, we're born close in age. Mine's conjunct Neptune. So <laughs> I have like, I have also had dealt with that, um, that like idealizing the delirium, <laughs> the, the romanticizing or the fixating, the ignoring of the red flags. Like that's, that has also been a theme. And when I was able to kind of surrender control and actually enjoy dating um that became more of a theme I would say and it's like you know a journey of sort of finding balance within that but I will say like just on a very basic level having Venus in the sixth house in Capricorn it's it has made work like a very big part of my life and it to an extent it is I'm not going to say it's my first love but <laughs> that's always a thing that partners have to navigate is like my priority of work is significant. And that is quite obvious <laughs> to anyone who's in relationship with me. And that's, um, that's not always like easy, I would say for the other person. Um, 
yeah, those are some thoughts. Venus also rules my 10th house. So that's like, there's a, a link there, I think. But what about you, Kestrel? <laughs> I'm not sure where to start with her. You know, it's interesting though. I feel she was really in a blind spot for me initially, which when you see my chart, that is not the case. I have Venus in Virgo in the first house, which is considered to be in fall. However, she's in the middle decan where she does feel most comfortable. And the tarot card associated with it is gain. And in the Rider-Waite-Smith, it, it looks like a really well-adorned sovereign woman holding a hooded falcon. And so I have a lot of associations with this double body of the winged maiden, the human and the divine, and also really being one in myself, but also paradoxically, because she's ruled by Mercury. Um, I feel like my Venus is really alchemical, like in how I see myself and how others see me. And it wasn't something that I really understood until I really decided to embrace this apprenticeship with Venus. I was actually initially much more focused on Mars. However, my Venus is more or less in a loose trine to Mars and Mars is in like actually a more visible place in my chart, but in Taurus ruled by Venus. So there's, there's something interesting going on there, but I just absolutely delight in that that chemistry of myself and others and um, lighting up a room. I was really recently like this winter doing this love dyad with my husband and I was asking him what he really loved about me. And one of the things that he said he really appreciated is my ability to just really light up a room and bring warmth and um, just my joy of that one-on-one relationship. And it's, it's a little tricky too, because I can get so enthralled with somebody when I'm with you, especially in the one-on-one or in my therapeutic practice, it's, it's, it's called Aphrodite consciousness. This is not something I came up with. It's something that Jean Shinoda Bolin talks of in um, Goddesses of Every Woman where, you know, people really, I can really get swept up with somebody and I'm so in the moment in somebody, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's romantic and I want to consummate it, but I do enjoy that flirtation. And I love how Alain de Bouton, who runs the school of life, he's this British philosopher, talks about that flirtation of just really delighting in the beauty and the, the energy and the joy of another person. I feel like that's so much a part of who I am. But speaking of that blind spot, it wasn't until I really started studying the synodic cycles of Venus and essentially what a synodic cycle is, is, you know, how Venus travels around the zodiac act and returns to a certain spot in the chart conjunct the sun. And so we can watch that. So I was born with Venus in max elongation from 
the sun in an evening star phase. So the day I was born, the night before you would have seen Venus in the night sky, just shining, shining super bright, but she was moving very, very slow and about to station retrograde between the sun and the earth and this underworld. So when I was nine years old, she stationed retrograde and then very quickly, promptly descended not only into the underworld, but also into the 12th house in this very blind spot. <laughs> chart and so I've just been in this underworld with her in Leo so she went from Virgo to Leo and so it's just I've decided to dedicate myself to Aphrodite and an apprenticeship with her and one of the ways she's really shown up for me because I also um, think a lot about psyche is the four tasks of Aphrodite to Psyche on her path to Eros or love. And so I really feel like I'm on that journey of bringing my own inner masculine online and finding that unification in some way, but the tasks aren't easy. It's not an easy path. It's really trying to discern my priorities in this lifetime and remain compassionate, but also stand on my own two feet and see the bigger picture and learn to say no. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's an incredible journey. I don't have it figured out, but I'm somehow with her as my ally and she's a taskmaster. I mean, she's whipping me into shape. <laughs> it, I can go into the depths of darkness and like be playing all my silly, like romantic love songs, <laughs> but it is very divine. So I find her very divine and I find her most in nature. I mean, I have an earth mutable um, Venus too. So you know, my communing with beings and entities beyond the human is a big part of the journey as well. Yeah, I would love to talk more about um, your interpretations um, of reading charts with Venus as an evening star, a morning star. I don't know if you guys know this. I actually have the symbol of Psyche tattooed on my ankle because I <laughs> related so much to that story. Um, I read uh, Robert... Uh, a Johnson's book she which sort of talks about mature feminine psychology through the lens of the psyche and arrow story and um, my Venus is a morning star and that was also um, really helpful to learn I think it for me sort of feeds into this sort of like uh, chasing of love chasing of fantasy just like this this sort of hunger and definitely at, at times naivete and um, yeah, not fully developed sort of more childlike, which also I think plays into the, the cancer placement as well, sort of like seeking love and, and what, you know, without abandon and just sort of like chasing some nonsense out into the sunset or the uh, sunrise or what, whatever is, is being shown to me. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm Eliza, do you have Venus as an evening star as well? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, at times I feel, I don't know, I, I appreciate the morning star quality to my Venus, but I do feel like, and partially why I tattooed that symbol of psyche was like, again, it's okay to sort of be, um, drunk with that love and drunk with fantasy and, um, and romance and all of that. But if you want to have a mature 
intentional long-term relationship that you really do need to go into the underworld and do an apprenticeship with Venus and, um, you know, again, allow her to exist in that sort of infatuation bubble, but make sure that it's padded with, um, some experience and some self-reflection and just like patience too. I mean, a lot of my chart is very impatient. So I think just like giving it time to settle is, has been really important. Yeah. So like the evening star quality, I do think is like you already spoke to it a bit, but it to some extent is the contrast of that. It is um, maybe being a little more measured or patient or, or wizened, um, perhaps not quite crone, but there is more of a mature um, rather than like the youth sort of running headlong into love. It, there's more of the, more of the tendency to bide your time. And I think I've, it's hard to discern whether that comes from having Venus as an evening star or whether that comes from having Venus in Capricorn. Uh, so ruled by Saturn, which is like the plot of taking your time <laughs> and commitment. Um, but again, like that to, in my chart that has been offset by the Neptune conjunction. So like, I, I can definitely I'm not immune to sort of that, like losing control and, and um, sort of just releasing into the infatuation. <laughs> but there certainly has been more hesitancy for me, I would say. Like I wasn't, as I already kind of mentioned, I wasn't someone who would just sort of bulldoze into relationships as a teenager. Like I, I avoided them at all costs. I had like serious social anxiety when it came to dating. I literally, I remember I have vivid memories of like this guy in my school bringing me flowers and I hid under my bed and made my mom tell him to go away. <laughs> this is, this is my Venus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Oh, my Venus did that too, though. <laughs> no, no, Venus, sorry, Venus and Virgo and Venus, Venus and Capricorn, I feel have some similarities. It's technically not in fall in Capricorn, yeah. but it may as well be. <laughs> yeah. I am, Eliza, do you feel, I know several people with Venus and Capricorn, um, and I'm always sort of intrigued by the idea of like, you know, structuring Capricorn one's life, um, around these sort of core needs and comforts too. Like, it's very interesting to have Venus be a task maker or, um, you know, even taking up like a more boundaried or structured position within a relationship, which it's totally opposite of me. Um, I definitely seek that, you know, in other people, mm -hmm. like, can you please create some structure and boundary? But um, for me, it's, it is a lot of falling and a lot of like watery, you know, like <laughs> swimming about. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think I've had to actually like, I mean, because again, like the having my moon in Libra and, you know, obviously my Venus Chiron situation is super important, but I've, I've had to like be active and intentional about structuring my life in a way that is comfortable and in a way that, um, fulfills those core needs. Uh, so it's interesting to think about that sort of appearing maybe more naturally prioritizing those things, uh, more naturally. 
I, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, the way I've done that though is being very structured within myself and not seeking another person to do that work for me um, or to help me with that. Right. If anything, that can destabilize me. <laughs> but um, I will say like, so if you follow the path of rulership, yes, my Venus is in Capricorn, but Saturn who rules Capricorn is in Sagittarius for me. And I... Mm-hmm. I have long just been very happy to, I think it's partly because I, I historically have not always craved a long-term relationship. I've been very happy to dwell within like dalliances or just to like see somebody and I have no expectations and they have no expectations. And that's fine by me because I am wedded to other parts of my life and not necessarily to this um, desire to, to be in a long-term couple with someone. Um, I am right now in a serious relationship and I'm like it is increasingly I would say I do want to like honor that and devote myself to that it is a priority but I wasn't I can't say I was really seeking that it's just sort of now the reality and now I'm dedicating myself to it to some extent um but one way I've seen the Venus and Capricorn specifically show up is like what I'm attracted to versus what I'm repulsed by. And like, I'm, I'm attracted to hard workers. Mm. Then that's, that's Capricorn sort of par excellence, whereas flakiness and people who seem to lack ambition on some level, like I know it's not like I need a CEO. (laughs) That's not what I mean. It's just someone who has some, even if it's like their art that never sees the light of day, but that they are devoted to, like that turns me on. But if someone is just kind of floating in a soup of their own um, indecision or uncertainty about what they want to commit themselves to, like I don't, that is a turnoff for me. I do need someone who's hardworking on some level um, or I desire someone who's hardworking on some level. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk about that much, but like the ways in which Venus, our Venus placement also speaks to what we are attracted to or drawn to. Mm -hmm. Um, The two men I spend the most time with are both Cancer Rising, one Cancer Risings and one has a a stellium in Cancer. Um, And I've always found myself surrounded by these um, Cancerian sorts of people again, because like I'm sort of craving that that nurturance and I'm really attracted to that kind of, you know, whether it's showing up in a woman or a man, but that um, motherly uh, attention and um, care for sure. Lexi's barking. So if hopefully it won't come through. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that because I am so maybe to a fault particular <laughs> about my body and my health and I see myself as a temple. So I definitely, oh, I feel bad that I'm even going to say this, but like, I'm attracted to health. Like I'm really attracted to somebody who takes really good care of themselves as well. And my Venus can be so critical. It can be so self-effacing, but it can also, I think, make it really challenging to be with somebody like me because I'm always going for self-improvement personally. (laughs) And I can really get that all over partners and like 
almost just give advice mm-hmm. that's maybe not even wanted. Like it can feel quite intrusive <laughs> at times, but I am married to a Virgo sun who is shining on my ascendant in Venus. So it works with a Libra stellium. So there's a lot of aesthetic going on over here. <laughs> so I'm going to pause though, because Lexi's going nuts. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know we have to wrap up soon, Cass, cause you have to go. Um, but yeah, I, I love, I don't know, just thinking about Venus on that Pisces Virgo axis and her exaltation and fall. And, um, you know, if we can sort of depersonalize her a little bit and sort of see, you know, how can we dedicate ourselves to Venus in the form of like ritual and service and um, again, not service and that sort of like self-critical particular Virgo in way necessarily, but um, you know, how does like beauty and how do beauty and love inspire us? I mean, isn't that sort of like such a fucking driving force um, in life? And um, I was just, when I was talking to my friend Tao yesterday, we, we recorded a podcast Um, And speaking about that correlation that I think we can all relate to between like beauty and death and that if we allow ourselves to sort of like grieve and um, uh, feel pain to some degree that it really then translates almost automatically into this sort of like creative inspired joy, love burst in a way as well. Um, and yeah, and, and seeing Venus leading us in that way, as far as like, you know, inspiring us. And, um, I interviewed someone recently that like calls herself a muse. And I feel like we don't necessarily have a lot of those anymore. We have like fucking influencers. Um, but it's true, you know, to think of like, if we can sort of depathologize the idea of a muse and both in people and just in things in general and allow ourselves to you know, I don't know, be of service to the world, um, by way of things that we find beautiful and inspire us. And that that's not as, um, superficial and shallow It can be, um, but that it's actually like what creates life in some respect. Yeah. I forgot that service point. I love all those points you just made. And I, it's interesting too. I was, contemplating the word desire because I think um Susie Chang I think was recently talking about it on this Jungian life and you know it's to wish or long for express a wish to obtain but I really love the Mm -hmm. deeper meaning around it is just awaiting what the stars will bring which just feels very musy to me as well you know and how that it can inform us so much yeah go ahead it's that's the etymology. It comes from the Latin um, de sidere, sidere being stars, like sidereal. So that's it is baked into that word. Um, but I, I appreciate that too. That like poetic. Um, I don't know. Just that that aspect of desire that is so cosmic <laughs> on some level, and just adding like you know, inspiration giving us to some, inspiration and pleasure giving us something to live for on some level. I think it's one thing just to be a workhorse, but we do also just need to like feel bliss and feel ecstasy and feel enchantment and, and desire. Yeah. 
yeah, and pleasure and sensuality, like in this capitalist culture, I feel like we've made those sort of like things we only get if we work really hard or things we only deserve in small portions and like how would the world again obviously you can take it too far but how might the world be different if we did prioritize pleasure and desire and sensuality and like I think we'd be a lot happier in a lot of ways well and it's so cultural this is so fucking British like waspy work ethic because if you go to south of France if you go to parts of Italy parts of Spain life is centered around desire that's why you have a two-hour lunch break in a day so you can go home with your family and drink wine and eat and then have a nap (laughs) (laughs) it's so um i say this as someone with like almost exclusively british heritage this is like the the um scourge of that inheritance and colonialism one of them one of the many scourges (laughs) of colonialism is that we just inherited this like capitalist work-centric culture which I as a Venus and Capricorn do emulate (laughs) quite well but I can still be critical about it (laughs) yeah um okay well thank you both so much for being here um do you want to just remind everyone where they can find you on the interwebs um book a reading with you perhaps yeah so you can find we, I think we both have personal websites as well, but you can find both Kestrel and I at CosmicTonic.com and that's Cosmic spelled with a K. So K-O-S-M-I-C-T-O-N-I-C. And my personal website is ElizaRobertson.com, but that doesn't really get you very far. That's just <laughs> more about me and what I'm up to. Um, and on Instagram, at, I'm at eCarousel and we're at CosmicTonic as well. Yeah. And folks can find me at Kessaru at Instagram. And then I also have my own personal website, kestrelneathawk.com. And yeah, I also wanted to make a plug if anybody would like to listen to Cosmic Tonic or you're already fans, we are beginning something anew this month where we're, um, if you register on our site, we are raffling off a reading. It's an hour reading between myself, Eliza, and our lovely co-host, Jasmine. So just an extra little perk. Yeah. Awesome. It's a collaborative reading with three astrologers. So it's like three astrologers to one client, which is basically, I described it as like a think tank based on you. So <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if folks are interested, they can sign up on the website and they'll be entered into the draw. <laughs> That sounds awesome. I love that idea. Thank you guys again. Love Love you so much. Thank you so much, Anya. It's always such a pleasure. (laughs) Hello again. Thank you for listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was fruitful and educational and inspiring. If you would like to join us for the October Lunar Circle, um, please go to anyakotz.com slash lunar circle to enroll. There is discount pricing being offered through September 10th. Uh, The price will go up on September 11th, and then registration closes on the 20th, and we begin on October 4th with the Libra New Moon. Uh, Please reach out with any questions, concerns. I want everyone to participate in this if you want to. We'll make it work somehow, so please don't hesitate to reach out and ask. Um, mostly I would just like you there or <laughs> we'll figure out a way to get you into it. Um, so send me an email on at gmail.com or on Instagram at Anya.cots. 
Um, I'm going to play you out with a song called Healer in the Sky by the Secret Sisters. Um, I feel like this song relates. Uh, I think this song is probably about like traditional Christian God, potentially. <laughs> um, although this album, I'm pretty sure it's called Saturn Return, so or Saturn Return, so I'm not sure. Um, but I think really we're all trying to do the same thing. If you're religious, if you're spiritual, if you're just trying to find meaning in the world, we're all looking for that. And I think there are many healers in the sky, however you'd like to interpret that. And I don't think it's lame or silly to consider yourself a spiritual person. There are ways to do this and still feel authentic and still feel grounded and not be a narcissist or a guru. It's difficult. And you may have to wade through a bunch of bullshit in order to get there, but I promise it's possible. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for this growing community, for those of you that I will get closer to in the upcoming Lunar Circle. And thank you for supporting me with your ears and your energy, um, knowing you guys are on the other end of this big black box <laughs> is very comforting for me. You guys are doing me a service as much as you may feel I'm doing you a service. And uh, yeah, I hope to get to know a lot more of you, whether that's in the lunar circle or during a meetup or just via the interwebs in some way. Y'all are my people. I've said this before, but I basically started this podcast because I had no friends and I didn't know where to find them. And so I thought, well, maybe if I just pick up a microphone and talk about myself and my beliefs, that friends will come to me. And let me tell you, it worked. So thank you. Thank you for hearing my calls. Thank you for answering them. Love you all. Talk to you next time.
slippers I loved my children And I loved a savior I'll take my chances On the cancer I lived my life And I found the answer And I